If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast. My co-host Alex is getting married this weekend, so he's not with us today, unfortunately. But we've got TechCrunch editor Danny Crichton on the line. Danny, how are you? Things are good. Good to be here, Kate. So you're joining us from New York right now. I'm in San Francisco. We're doing a little bit of a remote recording. And just before we started taping, we got some news, which is always my favorite when news breaks right before we start recording. And this is some Slack news. Danny, do you want to tell us um, what we heard from Slack? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for context, we've been waiting for kind of the the Slack direct listing, I, I guess, for almost years now. I mean, Slack has kind of been uh, talking about it. The S1 was filed a couple of weeks ago, and we found out five minutes before this taping that, that Slack is going to go out at 26 bucks a share. So, you know, the expectation up until this point is that it was going to be valued at around $17 billion, and it looks like the price... It sort of matches that. So, you know, at least for Slack uh, going public, it looks like uh, the direct listing is at least ready to be a success. And well, I guess you'll know this as you hear this episode. You know, we've talked about Slack's direct listing a lot on this podcast. We've written about it a lot at TechCrunch. It's a really big deal for a lot of reasons. You know, first and foremost, Slack is a product used all over the world. Of course, all of us use it here at TechCrunch. It's very popular. Um, it's a well-known product uh, and it's raised hundreds of millions of dollars at a large valuation, I think, of about $7 billion. So it's a big deal on that front. Secondly, it's only the second very mainstream direct listing to ever be completed following Spotify's direct listing last year. I don't know, Danny, do you remember much about how Spotify's direct listing went, at least initially? I think it went absolutely fine. I mean, it, there wasn't a lot of controversy. It, it, it actually went, I think, a lot better than a lot of people anticipated. And there was a lot of fear, at least for the Wall Street folks around where I live, uh, that it might actually cut back on fees for investment beggars going forward. So if we... It, if Slack goes kind of the same way, uh, you can imagine that maybe Airbnb, some of the other larger kind of consumer and well-known IPOs may also take this route. And, and that's going to cut back a little bit on the investment bankers. Yeah. So you mentioned Airbnb and they are rumored to be considering a direct listing. And I would not be surprised because one of the requirements of pursuing a direct listing is you kind of have to be a well-known company with a brand that people are familiar with, which allows you sort of to forego the roadshow process that is typically a fundamental part of the IPO process. That's right, and I think I, I think the interesting one. So certainly, Airbnb would be a logical choice. The the, the wild card here is WeWork, right? Uh, a, a huge brand name, particularly among millennials and other sort of creative office workers, but has some serious serious debt questions. So it'll be interesting to see for them. You know, do they approach the big institutionals with sort of a, a, a good financial story, or are they going to approach sort of the the retail investor and say, hey, you know, we're work we're one of the largest landlords in the world you should be a part of this team yeah i mean i personally hope that we work just goes about it in the traditional sense and not and doesn't try to pursue a direct listing i just want to i think that they should have to kind of answer all the questions that comes with completing a traditional ipo and have to do the roadshow process i think one of the interesting things we're going to have to look at as slack is you know in the context of a lot of the other tech ipos this year so we had uber we had lyft um, which have not performed very well um, Beyond Meat was doing super well for a period of time, and then it kind of got, got back, and now it's gyrating back and forth. And so I think what's interesting with Slack, particularly with this direct listing kind of architecture, is that, you know, will it actually hit the public markets really, really well? Um, will people kind of buy those shares, or will they kind of collapse after the first couple of days? Um, because that's going to set the tone for a lot of the other IPOs waiting in the wings um, in the coming year. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Ever since Uber and Lyft's IPO, IPOs did not perform as expected, there's been a lot of eyes on pretty much every exit coming out of Silicon Valley or coming out of the tech industry. And then given the fact that Slack is also pursuing a different form of a public offering, of course, even more people are watching. But I'm curious, Danny, how do you think Slack's direct listing will go? I think it's going to go better than the other ones, right? So Slack is less, I don't want to say it's not an innovative company, but, you know, compared to ride hailing or or to, uh, you know, fake meat or, or, or artificial meat, um, Slack is a classic SaaS company. It's used by a huge number of organizations. Its numbers are very, very strong for SaaS. And so, I mean, it's not sort of inventing a new model to analyze it. You can sort of compare it to every other SaaS company targeting the enterprise that's out there. So I, I think in terms of the analysts who are kind of covering the stock, they have a much better handle on you know, the strength of it, how to price it, how to look at growth over the coming months. And so, you know, assuming Slack actually continues its its growth pattern, um, I don't expect to see the level of gyration that you've seen in some of those other shares. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. An enterprise software IPO at the end of the day is um, a lot safer of a bet than a ride hailing or a fake meat IPO. Um, so, you know, I've noticed this week, there's been a lot of chatter, like just within the TechCrunch staff and a little bit on Twitter about opportunities for Slack to be acquired today. I mean, this is the last day that that could happen before it, of course, becomes a public company. Um, So given that Slack has such a high valuation, that leaves very few acquirers um, that, you know, have the money in the bank to make a deal like this. So who could acquire Slack and why would they? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not uncommon for particularly enterprise companies to sort of be sniped at the last, you know, midnight before the public offering. So we see this often in the cybersecurity space. Uh, Cisco and RSA sometimes do this. Um, And so the question is, is, you know, Slack is obviously a really uh, unique property. It's a social network of sorts in the enterprise. And so there are, you know, acquirers, you know, most likely Microsoft would potentially be one of the candidates um, with sort of a wild horse around Google, maybe wanting to uh, buttress Google Docs. But, um, you know, given this price point, th- there's really not a, a large number of candidates, right? Assuming it goes out at 17, 16, 17 billion, <laughs> you know, that's a lot of cash to buy out all those shares. So um, it, it's still possible in the next couple hours. So maybe by the time you hear this episode, we're going to be shocked that uh, I don't know, like someone came in and, you know, Facebook bought it and it's uh, the new Facebook work and, and we're all going to look like morons. But I, I think this is going to go public. You know, maybe it's a, a story like in the coming year or two, you can imagine someone buying it out as it sort of stabilizes in price. But I'd be shocked to see something happen in the next 48 hours. Right. I mean, just because no one buys it tonight does not mean there's no opportunities in the future for Slack to be acquired. But I would say, um, you know, my opinion, it's 99% chance that it will complete a direct listing tomorrow and there will not be any last minute deals. Although that would be very exciting from our perspective. It would certainly drive traffic. <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, as a reminder, you know, Microsoft bought LinkedIn several years after its IPO. So it, it certainly mm-hmm. doesn't close the door. Um, but it, it's something where uh, I just don't think in this market there's been a lot of sniping uh, right before the, the public markets. Okay, so now let's move into our next topic, which, um, you know, is the grand scheme of things, probably a lot bigger of a deal to our general audience than Slack's direct listing. And that is that Facebook this week finally released the details of its cryptocurrency called Libra. So, Danny, why don't you just tell us kind of the basics of what this is? You know, there's always been the the search for the holy grail of cryptocurrencies, right, which is something that's stable, something that's secure, something that's used widely so you can buy your coffees, your lattes, your your, your software with one coin. And, And while Bitcoin and Ethereum and a couple others have tried to to sort of play this role, uh, no one's sort of been successful. And so, you know, the excitement around Facebook Libra is you you finally have a program. So it's targeted to be sort of a zero fee, um, stable currency built around a a basket of, of fiat currencies. 
um, that's going to be accepted in, in WhatsApp and Messenger and, and a couple of partners that are working on the, the Libra consortium. So at, at, at launch, MasterCard, PayPal, and a couple of others have, have sort of joined this consortium to, to kind of underwrite the model. Um, and Facebook is sort of targeting a public release um, in the first half of 2020. And so this this is like the first time we've seen a cryptocurrency get sort of automatic distribution, right? So Bitcoin started, you know, more than a decade ago. It sort of got popular in the, the cyber libertarian community and got more widely known over the years, but it, it's never been sort of widely accepted. Here is a, a cryptocurrency that's going to be accepted on day one by more than a billion people. And so I think that this is sort of a, a really interesting case study of, of whether crypto really is going to get popular kind of acceptance. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely the first of its kind um, in the sense that it's such a massive platform getting behind a cryptocurrency. And I just want to um, flag for anyone that hasn't read it. Uh, TechCrunch's uh, TechCrunch editor Josh Constein wrote a 4,000 word story explaining all the details of the Facebook Libra cryptocurrency after he went through like 100 pages of documents that Facebook had provided. And what I found really interesting, and you mentioned this a little bit, Danny, is the the Libra Association, which is this governing association agency they've built. It's a not-for-profit, which is going to oversee the de- development of the token. And it's basically because people don't trust Facebook and they thought, well, we have to get a big team behind this in order to have more trust in the cryptocurrency that we're developing. So what I had noticed, of course, given that I have this VC podcast and I cover VC, is that there was a bunch of VC firms that they've tapped to be a part of this association. And each of these firms as well as MasterCard, PayPal, and a bunch of other entities behind the Libra Association, invested $10 million into the project. Um, That was a minimum they had to invest. And some of the firms behind it are, um, well, actually, this is the full list of firms, Andreessen Horowitz, Breakthrough Initiatives, which I've never heard of, Ribbit Capital, Thrive Capital, and Union Square Ventures. And so these are some of the leading VC firms, you know, interested in in backing crypto companies. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, the the interesting thing here going forward is, um, you know, just in the 24, 48 hours since this was launched, um, there's been a huge amount of attention uh, from the on the part of regulators. So in the US, uh, we saw uh, the financial services um, House committee member, uh, Maxine Waters. We saw in France that the finance minister sort of questioned whether uh, you know Facebook should be even offering sort of a cryptocurrency pro- program and demanded that there's regulatory action before Facebook launches it. So I think one of the, the intentions with both creating this uh, association isn't just from the user's perspective, looking for privacy and, and lacking trust in Facebook. It's also to sort of head off, I think, what's going to be a, a real regulatory fight um, in, in, in Washington, in Brussels, in Paris, in London, um, to actually get this fully out there. Um, I think we also saw today uh, one of our writers, Manish Singh, who, who is based in India, uh, said that um, the, the Indian government isn't going to sign off on this. So in, in the WhatsApp cases, the, India already has sort of a separate payments app built into WhatsApp that's going to be different from the cryptocurrency uh, Libra. So, you know, it, it is going to be a complicated world. And I, I think getting as many people sort of on board has been Facebook's strategy from day one. So, Danny, what do you think about uh, what does this mean for all the startups who have been building, um, you know, for for years, uh, blockchain businesses, cryptocurrencies, um, you know, are they seeing this and thinking, oh, shit, like we uh, what are we going to do? Facebook is going to blow us out of the water. I think it, it, it's interesting to see how much the, the crypto community has sort of moved past just payments, right? Payments isn't a solved problem by any means. Um, but, you know, outside of Bitcoin um, and obviously a couple of others that have tried to compete it with Bitcoin, um, you know, most of the startups aren't targeting just payments or the moving of store of value. They're trying to move into, you know, applications. So this is sort of the Web3 initiative. They're moving into distributed computing, um, which is most popular with, with Ethereum, but there's obviously a lot of other projects in that category. And so I, I think what you're seeing here is like, 
it's great that Facebook wants to go do this. It's great that a large big tech company is coming in. Um, It's actually going to empower, I think, a lot of the e-commerce brands and some of the other sort of digital native um, vertical brands that we've seen coming out of New York and other places. But from the crypto world, I I don't think it actually has any effect whatsoever. Um, I don't think they're going to tap into this. Um, From what I could tell, and it's obviously very, very early and maybe things will change, it's really not much of a platform. It's really like look, you could use Stripe, you could use PayPal, now you can use Libra. It's just another tool. And so I think for a lot of the cryptocurrency, you know, uh, sorry, crypto startups, you know, as they move into distributed computing and some of these other categories, you know, it just doesn't matter. It, 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 you can just kind of ignore it. Okay, well, like I said, I highly recommend everyone read Josh's story. I'm no cryptocurrency expert. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. The next topic we have, I'm by far more of an expert on, and that is scooter startups. You know, I heard this week from a source that Lime was, you know, out back um, on Sand Hill Road, so to speak, raising its Series E round. So Lime raised a Series D not too long ago that valued it at $2.4 billion. Um, now, just months later, it, it needs more money. So Lime and Bird are spending a lot of money on hardware because scooters are expensive and they've been iterating on their scooters to develop, you know, stronger ones, ones that in theory, last longer, you know, it's, it's costly to do that. And they need to keep raising hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, I, I think the burn rate for a lot of these scooters has just been out of control, right? So early on, you know, when, when the numbers were early, um, it was a big idea. Obviously, it's a huge, huge market. I think VCs were willing to look at this and say, hey, go take $100 million, go for it, take a look, see what we can get, see what data shows, you know, can you build out a network of people who recharge these, these scooters? Um, but now that I, I think that reality is sitting in, it's been another year, um, there's more data, you know, the regulators in San Francisco, LA and, and other cities around the world have sort of taken a look and, and are sort of controlling the market much more than they were before. Um, the reality is you, you can't kind of ignore the spreadsheet anymore, right? And so I think when Lime and a bunch of others are sort of fundraising, um, you know, it's hard to say, hey, our last valuation was this based on kind of really aspirational kind of numbers for the company. And our actual numbers are very different. Um, and, and VCs just can't ignore that anymore. So I think it's, you know, th- there's sort of two options. You either kind of devalue the company and kind of reset um you collapse because you don't want to fundraise. You try to find another source of capital that's willing to kind of keep going. Um, but I think it's it's always a tough spot to be in right now. So it's not surprising to hear that we're, we're hearing them all over the place. Right. So the, from what I heard, Lime's having a hard time raising because they do want to have, um, you know, they want to see a nice valuation step up, of course. And VC, you know, say say they want to raise at $3 billion now uh, and they were last raised at they last raised at $2.4 billion. Of course, the VC is going to be like, OK, well, what, how, how can you justify that valuation? And, and they've only had a few months there's only been a few months in between those raises. How much could have they imp- could they have improved their metrics in such a short time? And it really begs the question: Will Lyman Bird even be able to close additional rounds? And if they don't, what's going to happen to these companies, which are the largest scooter players in the U.S.? That's right. And I, I think there's also this sort of macro effect of, of Uber and Lyft going public, right? So, you know, the two biggest transportation networks out there who, by the way, don't even need to buy hardware, right? Um, who have actually, in, in some ways, much better economics uh, than the scooter companies just went public and, and got kind of uh, hit pretty hard by by public market investors. And so, you know, at this stage, uh, the VCs are starting to look at the public markets and say, okay, you know, if we invest at three or four billion, um, what's sort of the storyline that gets us to a nice return uh, in the public markets in a couple of years? Uh, and I just don't think that that storyline is as easy. There's been compression at the top. There's kind of compression from the numbers from um, the companies on the bottom. Uh, that's a really tough place to be. Um, and so, you know, how do you go forward from there? Yeah, I think you're right, too. You mentioned the Uber and Lyft IPO having you know a big impact on this. And 
I think that's actually relatively understated the, the the role that those IPOs might have had on Bird and Lime's fundraising plans. And I've heard from investors that I think Lime, uh, you know, I'm sure Lime and Bird, but in this case, I just heard about Lime, was really counting on those IPOs performing well. And actually, I mean, a lot of us did think that they were going to go a lot smoother than they did. And, and, and you know, had they had they had these really massively successful floats, given that they're both uh, you know, both they're all leaders in the mobility space. It would have only assisted Lyme and Bird as they went out and fundraise. And now that that's not happening, you know, I think we can all assume it's just going to be really tough. And I would not be surprised if we either see flat valuations coming out of their next rounds, or we even see kind of what you said, sort of a repricing event. Uh, you know, again, as you move from the early stage investors who don't pay any attention or very little attention to the public markets, um, you know, just as you're talking to the people who kind of care what the public markets think, you have this horrifically bad news. So, um, look, I, I, that's not to say we just saw in, in New York here the launch of a new scooter company, uh, Revel. Um, their scooters just randomly started showing up in front of my house. Um, there's obviously internationally a lot of other uh, interesting new scooter companies coming out in Taiwan and in India, um, which I was just looking at in the last week. So I do think that a lot of people are still attempting to target this market. The, the question is, is you know, Lime might have been the first to the market. Um, but are they the ones who actually are going to be able to own it? And, and that's going to be the story that you're going to be able to write in the next six months or not. I completely forgot, but I heard that New York has legalized scooters or is on the way to legalizing scooters. So you said there actually are some on the road there now? There, there are some on the road. Uh, and you can download uh, the Revel app. You, you sign up right on the spot and then you can take it to go. Um, I have to say, uh, the very first weekend that I saw them here, I was nearly run over by one, by someone who uh, clearly did not know how to ride a scooter. <laughs> so, you know, the, the experience of living in SF has now come to New York. New York does not seem like the right place for scooters. So I wish you guys luck, but that just seems like a nightmare. People are very afraid to uh, drive uh, with New York drivers on the road. So they come onto the sidewalks and um, the Revel scooters anyway are, are quite powerful. Uh, they can cruise at like 25, 30 miles an hour from what I could see. Uh, so you got pedestrians and kids and strollers and a, a madman who just figured out that uh, his app suddenly allows him to to drive like a wild, you know, wild cart all over the sidewalks. So uh, we'll see how that all works out in the next couple of weeks. Well, we've talked enough about scooters on this podcast, so let's move on. Um, another story that I wrote this week was about the co-founder of Plaid, which is a financial services startup, uh, stepping down. So I think this is interesting for, again, for a number of reasons, because Plaid is growing extremely fast. It's one of the fastest growing startups um, in Silicon Valley right now. It's getting a lot of attention. It has a lot of wind, wind at its sails. Kind of begs the question, why would the co-founder and CTO, his name is William Hockey, why would he decide now is the time to leave? And I think the obvious kind of answer there is that the company sort of outgrew him. That's not the story that they're saying. And, and you know, he said he was just, he'd been planning to leave for a long time. But we recently saw this happen with Lime, actually, a company we were just talking about. The co-founder and CEO of Lime stepped down, to, quote unquote, to focus on R&D and company culture. And then a more experienced co-founder stepped in and took the lead. So I'm kind of curious, Danny, what your thoughts are on this and what you think when you see a co-founder step down just as a company is reaching new heights? Well, it's always a, a complex set of variables, right? So in some cases, um, you know, the role does kind of move far ahead of uh, the capabilities of the person who's holding it, right? So you started as CTO as a team of three. Uh, suddenly, your engineering team is several hundred. Um, some people can't scale. Some people don't want to scale, right? So you really love that early stage team. You love being on an R&D. Um, and so you want to run a, a little skunk works. And then when it becomes a big company, it's, it's all meetings, right? And not everyone enjoys that. In some cases, uh, and this is really challenging from the VC side is, uh, you know, after four or six years, uh, the founders invested, right? They own their shares. Uh, they, they have all the financials that they're ever going to have. Um, and while founders certainly, I think, 
are always in love with their companies and want them to do super well, you know, there is sort of this, well, why am I sticking around not moving on to another project? Like I, I have mine. Uh, I own all the shares I'm going to own. Uh, maybe I'm being pushed out. Maybe there's a disagreement on how the, the future direction of the company is. And it's like, well, fine, I'm just going to leave, right? My, I'm going to hold on to my, my percentage points. So um, I think there's always sort of a, a, a couple of different dynamics. But, you know, I, I don't think it's easy to see if you don't really know the players uh, exactly what is taking place. Right. And I, you know, from what I, from my reporting on Plaid just in the past, and then kind of with the stories, uh, William Hockey was really well liked. And, and as far as I know, a great CTO. So I don't think he was forced out, but I do think it does happen a lot. And what people probably don't realize is how much control VCs can have in making personnel decisions like this. Um, so Plaid has raised a lot of money. They just raised $250 million at, it was like a around a two and a half, two and a half, three billion dollar valuation. They had Mary Meeker join their board. So like I said, this is a company people are watching. You know, you may not have heard of it because it is kind of, um, it's a behind the scenes company that essentially powers third party financial apps like Venmo. So it's not something like Slack that you are using or that you know that you're using on a day-to-day basis that you probably are. But yeah, anyways, the point being is that this does happen a lot. Um, often co-founders are forced out. And I think um, it's kind of an interesting thing that goes on uh, behind the scenes in Silicon Valley with startups. Absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things here as well is, um, you know, obviously the focus is oftentimes on the CEO, right? And as much as VCs often talk about how, you know, we, we want to protect the CEOs, we want CEOs to grow. The, the reality is, is a huge number of founders are pushed out, particularly if they're CEO. They're upgraded. Um, in the enterprise case, um, and oftentimes that's for their own benefit, right? I mean, they own shares as much as anyone else. And so if you can pull in, you know, a, a multi-time, extremely experienced exec to take over the company, um, that can work out really well. It, it's rarer from my perspective, though, to see a CTO get pushed out, um, mostly because the VCs, the board is usually focused on sales numbers, are usually focused on, um, you know, the, the growth of the company. And that's all kind of under the CEO label. Um, they oftentimes don't have the authority of, not authority legally, but the authority in the sense of credibility to say, well, I think the CTO really needs to be replaced because he's not doing a good enough job on the, the technical roadmap. Um, and so, you know, again, like I have a feeling it's a couple of different dynamics, but, um, you know, clearly he's out and, uh, you know, he'll keep his shares and, uh, uh there are worse things to have than he'll have a lot of shares in plat. <laughs> no, exactly right. And I think, um, we'll probably see him start a new project, uh, maybe in a couple of years. Like you said, he's probably vested, you know, he's vested. Um, and I also want to say, I've been saying William Hockey, I think that's how you pr- pronounce his name, but if I'm wrong, I'm very sorry. Um, okay, let's move on to our final topic, which is, Kind of an interesting story. Um, it's not news driven, but uh, interesting story we had published on Extra Crunch this week about startup founders' salaries. Yeah, so I mean, you're talking about founders and, and compensation. Um, our, our correspondent Ron Miller uh, talked to a bunch of VCs to ask, you know, how are founders sort of paying themselves today? Um, you know, obviously, cost of living in the Bay Area, and New York, and other startup hubs has, has increased dramatically, and so um, you know, VCs have. Have kind of had to become acutely aware of their founders' kind of financial means, and so one of the things that really came out of this survey, though, from my perspective, was just how high the numbers are. So, you know, we we we, we surveyed a small number, we we put it out in the interviews, um, and, and it came out to like post Series A, people are starting to get paid, you know, around two hundred k, but the numbers. You know, even a couple of years ago, I seem to recall like 120 was sort of the the magic number around kind of the Series A, 90K if you had sort of a serious seed fund and like 60 to 80 if you were just getting started. But the numbers that we saw out of this was were significantly higher. And I think that shows a lot about how the cost of living has just continued to creep up um, in, in San Francisco and in New York. 
Yeah, I mean, if I think this, the point is made in the story, like if you live in San Francisco and you're paying a mortgage and you have kids, of course, you need to make six figures really to get by, um, which is just kind of an unfortunate reality. But I, I can't say I was surprised by how those salaries looked. If you know, seeing one twenty five k for a, for a founder, if anything, I thought maybe it's a little low. But it reminded me. Um, of like nearly a year ago at this point when I wrote something on how much VCs are paid and I had written it um, based off data that was provided to me from a consulting firm and people were just up in arms on at what I had written because, and I understand um, looking back, I think it kind of grouped VCs together as VCs who work at really big funds who are getting, you know, the 2% carry out of, you know, a multi-billion dollar fund and who are paid a lot more. And there are of course VCs who run seed funds or, you know, any kind of, there's many different sizes of VC funds and some VCs are actually don't have a salary at all and are kind of um, up against the same challenges, if not even more difficult challenges of a startup founder. Well, if you, you know, you have a $20 million seed fund and you're getting 2% management fee, which is fairly typical, um, you're talking about $400,000 a year. And that includes rent, utilities, legal costs to cover the, the fundraise and the fund formation, the, the limited partner agreement. Um, it covers your travel. And so you're only getting the residual um, as salary. And if you have two partners, which is fairly typical for a lot of those sort of early stage seed funds, uh, you're dividing that by two. So let's say you have 250K in expenses, including taxes and everything. You have 150 left over, you divide by two. You might only be making 70, 75, you know, top line. Right. And obviously, carry, particularly for the seed funds, unfortunately, takes years and years and years. Um, you know, if you invest in Slack's early rounds, uh, it, a decade later, you're starting to get that check in the mail. So um, it, it can be really tough. And, and much in the way that startup CEOs, um, you know, at, at the seed stage are probably being paid in the tens of thousands, if low hundreds of thousands. But by the Series D, they're probably up into four or five hundred thousand. Um, you know, VCs, right. the salaries are all over, over the place. You know, the early ones yeah. are, are probably poorer than a lot of the startup founders are investing in. Right. And they definitely um, they might go for years without getting a salary at all. And, you know, as much as we can try to sort of write these stories and um, gather anecdotal evidence or can ask people to provide us some data, um, I think that's great. Uh, but this industry is just so opaque and it's so difficult to really know how much money people are making. Um, so it's kind of a frustrating uh, thing to try to cover. But I do like that Ron did the story and like even my efforts about a year ago to sort of write about what VCs make, despite them not being received particularly well in the VC crowd. I think it's worth it to, to sort of attempt to do it because people who are trying to enter these fields just have no idea what to expect. And it's just a really tricky. Well, and I think there's been a lot of concern, obviously, that, you know, if you look at the social economic backgrounds for a lot of founders, they obviously come from, you know, their wealthy backgrounds or have made personal wealth, you know, maybe at Google or somewhere else. Um, and I think as part of opening up this market to as many people as possible, you really have to ask, like, you know, what does it take? What are the requirements to allow more people to participate? And, and the key one here is, you know, can you live? <laughs> right? You know, it, it's great if you have millions of dollars from your last startup or, or you know, had stock options in a large company you grew up with um, and you're sort of just uh, paying out of pocket. But, um, you know, if you're a new college grad, if, if you come from a different background, you know, those, those salaries are really critical. And I, I think it's just great to see that I think more and more VCs are aware of that challenge, are paying attention to it, or actually just asking as part of the uh, deal making process, you know, you're signing, oftentimes, it's not uncommon as part of the um, term sheet negotiation, um, or at least through the diligence to actually have that conversation, which is, hey, you know, what do you think should be the salary for the next round, you know, for the next year and a half? Um, and so I, I'm just pleased to see it's probably not fixed, but it's definitely better than it was a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the, end of the day, founders need to make, be comfortable in order to really do their best work. So I think that's kind of what VCs might be finally realizing. Exactly. 
All right. Well, I think we're out of time. So thanks so much, Danny, for filling in for Alex this week. And hopefully we'll have you on the podcast again soon. Hopefully, if I'm not run over by a scooter. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye. Kate. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.